All right, good evening, everybody, and welcome. Glad you're here. We're in Hebrews chapter 11. We're moving verse by verse through the book, and we have come to verse 23 of Hebrews 11. We are looking at Moses and Moses' story of faith, which involves more people than just Moses, as we will see in a moment. Once you have it, if you're able, stand with us for the reading of God's word. Hebrews 11, 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child. And they were not afraid of the king's edict. Now, we're going to talk about a faith that's not afraid. That's the first mention of being not afraid. So just note that. You can mark that in a moment. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, second time we see this now, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. You can have a seat. Father, thank you for all the precious people who have gathered tonight in your name. And to, Lord, really, for all of us, as we study the book of Hebrews, to really see our faith increase, to see our faith grow, to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to grow by examples of the past, which the Hebrew writer has brought up, spirit-inspired faces, if you will, that we could connect to, that we could remember that human beings like us made it through tough times. They made it Uh, through very trying circumstances, probably much more difficult than most of us will ever face. And they made it, and they made it by faith. And Moses is a great name, a great man of faith. And, And even though he was that, Lord, we know that he had his challenges and he had his doubts, and he even had his doubts about his own ability. But in the end, you took this man literally from the water, and you allowed him to lead a nation through the Red Sea to Sinai and to the border of the promised land. And Lord, there's many things that we can learn in this little section tonight, but the application that we always desire is how can we live out what you have for us now in our contemporary age, in our time, when we face challenges uh, in our nation, and we need to have uh, the faith to navigate them well. So help us, Lord, with that. We lay the time at your feet. Give us ears and a heart to respond the way you'd have us to. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. A faith that's not afraid. I know fear is a big thing for probably every human being that walks the face of the planet. Some of us probably hide it better than others, but we're all dealing with fear to a certain extent. And the Bible is chocked full with promises about how to overcome fear. In fact, if you do a concordant search on don't be afraid or fear not, you will find many promises in the Bible, Old and New Testament, which will encourage you. And they're there for a reason, and that is because we face fear. And we know that God's not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, the power of the Holy Spirit, of love and a sound mind. 
And each of those components are ways to overcome fear. The power of the Holy Spirit, love, which casts out fear, we're told in 1 John, and a sound mind will eradicate fear because when you have a sound mind, you will have sound doctrine feeds a sound mind. You will have stability. You will have hope. You will have a good biblical perspective. So, so far as we've moved through all these heroes of the faith, the great hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, if you've been with us, we started with Abel way back in verse 4. And if you look ahead, the last name we have is Joseph. From Abel in the very early chapters of the book of Genesis all the way to the end of the book of Genesis, which is the story of Joseph, which, captured, which is captured in, I think it's about Genesis 37, all the way to the end that's Genesis chapter 50 with the death of Joseph. And uh, that's every uh, face in the Hall of Faith so far has all been in Genesis. So you could chronicle it easily by just, you know, you read the name and then you go back to the story. Now we transition to the next book of the Bible. It's pretty easy to navigate, right? The writer's just going to move from characters in Genesis to now a main character of the book of Exodus, and that is Moses. And if I said Exodus and said, think of a name, you'd probably say Moses, right? And so Moses takes up really all the pages of the book of Exodus, and he's the central character of it. And we have this familiar refrain in verse 23 as we transition to a hero in the book of Exodus with the, by faith, Moses. Now, the writer is going to start off when Moses was just a baby. It says, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents. And verse 23 really has more to do with Moses' parents than Moses, because they saw he was a beautiful child. And we all know that there's no ugly babies, especially in our own families. Can I get a witness? All right. Now, I have a new grandson, by the way. So he was born yesterday morning at about 5, 5.30 in the morning. And I don't have a name to share with you yet because parents are still moving through that. There's a lottery system going on. No, I'm just kidding. If you guys are watching, love you. But anyway, but um, I have pictures on my phone of the baby and we got to see the baby uh, earlier today, my wife and I. And uh, very precious. And he was just over six pounds and came a couple weeks early, and it's just this little tiny thing. And, you know, when you hold a baby, it's just so cool, and they're so fragile, you know, and you want to make sure you got the, the neck supported well and all of that good stuff. And, of course, dads, you know, they're already spinning the kids around when they're newborns, throwing them up in the air and all that stuff. Just kidding. Not throwing them up in the air. But, but anyway, as, as I was looking at the child um, this morning, I was thinking about, promises, uh, futures, what the world's going to be like, what he will be, uh, how the Lord will use him, things like that. And I'm sure mom and dad have had, had similar thoughts. And if you're a grandparent or maybe even a great-grandparent, you know, we, we start thinking about things like that and how much time we're going to have to actually invest in a newborn, you know, when a lot of us have lived a good portion of our lives already. And the writer of Hebrews takes us to Moses, but to the time of his birth, and specifically to the faith of Moses' parents, which if you think of Moses and, and you know something about the story of Moses, you might not immediately think 
of Moses' mom and dad. But their names were Amram, Amram and Yochabed, or Yoshebed. And they were very brave at a very difficult time in Israel's history. As the Bible transitions from Genesis to Exodus, if you flip over there, just the second book of your Old Testament, you're going to see the story. And the story is set in the book of Exodus as we see a new pharaoh come into town. The death of Joseph is in Genesis 50, verse 26. He lived to 110 years, and Pastor John preached about the moving of his bones out of Egypt. And in Exodus 1, verse 6, take a look. It says, And Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. So all the, the Genesis generation, if you will, all the sons of Jacob, all those uh, patriarchs and the 12 tribes represented. But the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. And you know, in the story of Genesis, there's the famine and the family uh, goes to Egypt because Egypt has the grain and Joseph providentially has become the second in charge there. And you guys know that story. And that's how the family originally moves from the, the uh, land of Canaan to Egypt. They're there because of a famine, but it's all the providential hand of God. And so uh, Joseph obviously was very well to do. He promised to take care of his family, but Joseph died and all that generation. But the sons of Israel, and this is a fulfillment of the promise that really was given to Abraham, that your uh, descendants will be as the stars of the sky, the sand of the seashore. They increased greatly. If memory serves, I think 110 people went uh, with Jacob to Egypt, but now they greatly multiply. And just to give you an idea, most scholars would argue that when they leave Egypt, there are at least a million or more people. So there was a great, you know, multiplication of the nation in fulfillment, at least partial fulfill, fulfillment of God's promise. And the sons of Israel increased greatly. They multiplied. They became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. Exodus 1.8. Now a new king, that's another way to say Pharaoh, arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. So Moses' faith story begins when he was just a baby, and a pharaoh has now risen to power, and pharaoh is really just a title, and he didn't know Joseph, and, and maybe the implication is he didn't really care about Joseph. He didn't care about the significance of Joseph. You know, when someone takes leadership in a nation, uh, influence can, can wane, and the influence someone had maybe on a past pharaoh may not matter to a current pharaoh. And that's really what happened. And this particular pharaoh was threatened by the uh, uh, explosion of the population of the Israelites. And this king of Egypt, 15, Exodus 1, spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra, the other was named Pua. And he said, when you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth and see them upon the, upon the birth stool, if it is a son, then you shall put him to death. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God. And I will just say this to you. If you were a Hebrew midwife and the Pharaoh had gotten a message to you that if you see a boy being born, you're to kill it and you disobey 
probably the most powerful man on the planet at this time, your life is on the line. And the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. The fear of the Lord will cause you to do what's right and hate what's wrong. And the fear of the Lord will squash all other fears. Amen? If you live your life, and of course, you know, when we say the fear of the Lord, we're talking about reverential awe, but there is also always a component, both in Hebrew and Greek, of that word fear that speaks of fear in the sense that we understand fear. Not just holy reverence, but God is to be feared because he is powerful, holy, majestic, and controls the universe and speaks things forth, and you know his power, manifested on Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19 of many places. And so they feared the Lord more than they feared the Pharaoh. And I hope that's true of you and I, that we fear the Lord above all other fears. And they did not do as the Pharaoh or the king of Egypt had commanded them, but they let the boys live. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives. You can imagine that would be an intimidating phone call, right? And said to them, why have you done this thing and let the boys live? But the midwives, the midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, they are vigorous, <laughs> love that, and give birth before the midwife can get to them. Now, we don't know for sure if this is true or not. Um, it would appear that the midwives, these two midwives, may have been in charge of a larger group. It's hard to imagine that two Hebrew midwives could uh, take care of all these babies being born, left and right, up and down. I don't know all the details. People debate it. You know, were they being deceptive? Were they telling the truth? Was it a partial truth? I'll let you wrestle with that. But uh, God was good to the midwife. So whatever the backstory is, God saw it as a noble thing, what they did, because thou shall not murder is a pretty important commandment, amen? amen? And this is what people in Nazi Germany had to wrestle with. Do we, if, if, if confronted, do we expose locations of Jewish people or even ones hiding in our closet or basement if the Nazis come to the door? What should we do? Do you have any Jews here? Uh, uh, I'm not supposed to lie, so yeah, they're in, in the closet. People really had to face things like this. And the greater good was to be deceptive to protect life. So I'll let you wrestle with whatever conclusion you come to. But God, uh, he honored the midwives. He was good to them. And the people multiplied and became very mighty because this terrible plan of uh, destruction was not obeyed. And because the midwives feared God, 21, he established households for them. And Pharaoh then took a alternate plan. He commanded all his people, saying, every son who is born, you are to cast into the Nile. Every daughter, you are to keep alive. He, he basically went to a wider audience. Maybe his own advisors, maybe his inner circle, maybe all the citizens were told. Could you imagine this? A public address from the Pharaoh. All right, 
Here's what I want you to do. You see a Hebrew baby boy, you grab it and you throw it into the Nile. That, that, that you say, is almost unthinkable. It's sick. Really? You see what's happening today? Do you see that politicians want to push the laws to where a baby is born and then we can determine whether we kill it or not? Essentially, and by the way, this is coming from academia as well. This is coming from you know places like Princeton and others and Nobel laureate winners are, are making arguments that we should determine whether a child should live or die based upon our assessment and essentially throw children to the Nile God. And by the way, the Egyptians did believe that the Nile was a god, small g. And Pharaoh was basically saying, I want you to turn the Nile red with blood. I want you to feed the babies to our God. What was the Nile to the Egyptians? Well, it was everything to them because it was life. A water source like the Nile River and the evidence from uh, the Egyptian records that we have is that most people live by the Nile because it was a water source. So they saw it as their economy. They saw it as their God. Do you see the connections to modern society? Oh, we, we call it by different rhetoric, but we're doing the same thing for the same reasons. Yes, there are some difficult exceptions, no doubt. And when I say exceptions, I mean difficult cases. I still don't think that the answer is to abort a child because the child is the innocent party. But I don't want to go too far in this direction. I just want to say this that we can couch it however we want in our political rhetoric. But the ones that did the right thing were the midwives. Amen? And God honored them. And you may be tempted in your circle of influence or people in your family who hold a certain political persuasion or they, they hold a position that sounds good until you really Break it down to its bare minimum facts. God will never honor a society that kills its children. Never. So here we are. The good old U.S. of A., right? And we want God's blessings, and we'll say, God bless America in our speeches. And yet, the Nile is red with blood. So, this is the difficult situation that Moses' parents find themselves in. A pharaoh that did not know Joseph, didn't care about Joseph's influence, and he has an edict. All baby boys die. They should die. And if the Hebrew midwives won't do it, then my people are going to do it. My Egyptian citizens or his leadership, etc. And Reading between the lines and having done a, a reasonable amount of study on Exodus, I, I'll tell you that scholars would say that probably sweeps were regularly happening in Goshen where the uh, Israelites lived and they were regularly sweeping the area to try to find newborn baby boys, uh, kind of, of a parallel with what Herod did in Bethlehem. And so the moms had to try to hide the children. And the dads were most likely 
making bricks for the Pharaoh and away from the house, probably either days at a time or at least long hours doing the mud dance for the Pharaoh. And so the women were left to try to figure out how to protect their children. And you know how mamas are with babies, right? You do whatever you could to protect that child. The story then transitions into chapter 2 of Exodus with these words. Now, a man from the house of Levi went and married a daughter of Levi. Moses comes from the Levitical line. His brother was the first high priest. His brother was older than him, Aaron. The woman conceived and bore a son. When she saw that he was beautiful, if you're wondering about that, it means that he was something like he was fine. Uh, Some see this as beautiful in God's eyes or that there was something about him that spoke of a, a plan that God had. And just, this is just a sub-point, kind of uh, an extra-biblical uh, quote. Josephus says that Amram, Amram um, Moses' dad, had some sort of dream or vision that the child was going to be special and that there was going to be a lot of difficulty around him. And this is just, this is an extra-biblical source but no one, someone no less than Josephus, the first century a Jewish historian who recorded the fall of Jerusalem and all of that, says that Amram got some sort of insight from the Lord about Moses. So I'll just leave that to you. And so here's what happens. It says, um, she hid him for three months, and that's what we read in Hebrews 11. But when she could hide him no longer, and you know, you have a, a baby, you can probably hide them for a, a little bit, but... They do cry and and have needs and all of that. And so she got him a wicker basket, covered it over with tar and pitch, and she put the child into it and set him among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. Now, what she created here, see that phrase wicker basket? That's kind of a papyrus basket. And the name there is only used one other place, and it's used for Noah's Ark. Um, the only other time the word is used in Hebrew is when Noah constructed the ark. And what was the purpose of Noah's Ark? Well, Noah constructed the ark and he covered it with pitch. And it was supposed to withstand the judgment of God or the flood. And of course it did. And Noah and his family survived. And it became a floating boat of salvation, if you will. That's the picture. In fact, the the word behind the language here is where we get the idea of covering or atonement or uh, kafar. And so she covered it, notice, the idea of covering there's the idea of atonement with tar and pitch. And she put the child into it and set him among the reeds, kind of like a mini ark. Uh, She placed her child in the ark because she couldn't hide him anymore. And it's a little strange because where she put him was the place that the citizenry was told to drown Hebrew baby boys in the Nile. But she didn't just put him in there, right? She created this basket of love. She probably gave him a final kiss and she released him to the Lord, which I just want you to think with me. We're in a chapter that says by faith, by faith. By faith. How much faith would it take, mom, to release your child into a Nile River, into the hands of God, if you will? I mean, that 
That's amazing. I want, you to, I want you to hear something that's really important to this faith story. Behind Moses was Pua and Shifra, two Hebrew midwives. Their names mean beautiful and splendid. And then there's, there's a mom, a loving mom. And it's likely that Moses lives because these midwives won't follow through with uh, the Pharaoh's evil plan. And Moses also lives. Ultimately, God's in charge of all of it. So big umbrella, God. But his mom, by faith, released him into the hands of the Lord and said probably a prayer like, oh God, he's yours. You gave him to me. I'm going to give him back to you. And whatever becomes of him, I release him into your hands. That is faith. And sometimes, you know, we, we in Christian circles, we talk about holding things loosely, right? <laughs> Jobs, finances, family, children. Some of us have prodigals in our lives. Some of us have difficult, you know, things that we're facing. And we say, we're going to hold them loosely because my life's not my own. And ultimately, I belong to God. And everything I have is from God. And every good and perfect gift is from heaven. And therefore, I'm just going to open up my hands and open up my heart and release things to the Lord. But I wonder how many times she wanted to grab that basket. <laughs> I wonder how many times she wanted to change that plan. <laughs> but finally, she had to just set him and let him go. And you say, that's crazy. How, how could a mom do that? It sounds to me like she had no other choice. And so she decided that she would release him to the Lord. Notice what happens. His sister, that's Miriam, stood at a distance to find out what would happen to him. And the daughter of Pharaoh just so happened, notice, came down to bathe at the Nile with her maidens walking alongside the Nile. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid, and she brought it to her. In all likelihood, the uh, daughter of the Pharaoh, probably not his only daughter, but we don't know for sure, was taking a ritual bath in what they thought were the magical waters of the Nile River. She'd probably be attended by four maidens who would wash her because she was, you know, the princess kind of thing. And as she's down there, just so happens at the moment that she's taking this ritual bath, if you will, here comes this little floating ark of salvation. She sees it. And she calls her maid. And they brought it to her. They brought the basket among the reeds. Uh, they sent her, sent her maid. She brought it to her. When she opened it six and saw the child Behold, the boy was crying, and she had pity on him. Pity or compassion is uh, something we studied on Sunday, Jesus looking on the people with compassion. And she said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. And how did she know that? Well, in Cecil B. DeMille's The Ten Commandments, you remember what is there? It's a, it's a blanket uh, sewn in the Hebrew colors. Is it possible that that's it? Uh, I don't know any Egyptian children that be floating on the Nile, do you? <laughs> so could it be that she just knew, hey, this is my dad's edict, right? 
Maybe she wasn't happy about the edict. Could you imagine? I mean, everybody has a tender heart for children. Who could think that this was good? But she was raised in the propaganda probably to hate the Jewish people. Sound familiar? When rhetoric and propaganda go out, it can begin to change the feeling, especially of young people towards, you know, a certain ethnic uh, group. And that should never happen. But you can poison the well, poison the mind enough where someone will start to hate somebody else and they don't even know why they hate them. Or they've been fed a pack of lies. And so, here's the Pharaoh's daughter. And maybe we could say as students of the Bible, knowing our God, maybe God put pity in her heart, but I think all human beings would have a soft spot here for a child floating in a basket crying. And then his sister said to the Pharaoh's daughter, she was, big sis was watching out. Shall I go call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go ahead. So the girl went and called the child's mother, notice. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take the child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. The child grew. This is Moses. She brought him to Pharaoh's daughter. He became her son. She named him Moses, which most scholars believe is a probably a combination of both an Egyptian and Hebrew name. It has the idea of, the, of drawing out or drawing out of the water. Uh, but it's also prophetic of Moses' mission because he would draw the people out of Egypt. So it becomes prophetic. She probably didn't know that it was. But she had drawn him out of the water. Now mom gets to nurse him probably till he's three or four years old. That's when they would wean a child. And then uh, she would bring him back. So she, he became her son. She named him Moses because I drew him out of the water. And then we have the story of Moses growing and the hard labors of the Hebrew people. This is so cool because it's a story of faith releasing a baby to God and getting him back and getting paid for it. Isn't that cool? And sometimes God will give you frosting on the cake. Now you have the daughter of the Pharaoh who brings him into her house, which is going to protect him for the rest of his life. And you get paid to nurse your own child. And for three or four years, guess what Yoshebed or Yochebed was probably whispering in Moses' ear? Yahweh is the true God. She probably packed into that three, four years all she could. And just to give us a time frame, Moses left Egypt when he was about 40. He went out to his people when he was approaching the age of 40. So she had uh, some time to pour into him. I don't know if she had any you know, visitation rights after that. But what's so awesome is she had a chance not only to care for him, but to pour into him. And God did a miracle and protected the one who would become what? The deliverer. Because Moses was set apart by God to deliver the people. 
And Moses becomes a type, a picture of Christ. Amen? Who God obviously protected. And remember, if you fast forward to Matthew chapter 2, here's what happens. Herod wants to kill the baby. And Joseph is told in a dream to skip town. And where does he go? He goes to Egypt and hides the child, kind of an uh, ironic twist here, hides the child in Egypt until Herod and the others that want to kill the child are dead. And then out of Egypt, Hosea 2, I think it's Hosea 2 or 12, I think probably chapter 12. Out of Egypt I have called my son, and that's a prophecy of Jesus coming out of Egypt and duplicating the exodus by the hand of God. This is Moses' story. And when he was just a little baby, mom, dad hid him. They knew God had a plan, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. I don't know all the angles of what this looks like, but they did not operate from fear. They operated from faith. Now, to me, it seems crazy to make this basket and just release this child down the Nile. But somehow, they were directed to do it. And as they obeyed God and released the child to God, he did the rest. Now, if you hold a place in Exodus and turn back to Hebrews 11 for a moment, that's verse 23. And the first faith story from Exodus is that of Moses' parents. And if we backtrack a little bit, Hebrews 11, we also see two probably not as celebrated as much as they should be Hebrew midwives who took their stand in their generation and could have justified doing otherwise Probably many different ways, right? Well, you know, our lives were on the line and the order came from the Pharaoh and what are we to do? We work for the system. We work for the man. You know, this is my job. I, I gotta do this because, can you fill in the blanks? Everything we went through during COVID, right? How many people were over a barrel working for cities and departments where they were forcing people to do things against their will? And it was tough, but it wasn't unprecedented decisions that people had to make. I mean, take that situation in times of by however many to be in the sandals of Amram and Yoshebet. But God was faithful, and they operated by faith, and they did not operate in fear. And some of you need to hear this afresh. You've got to stop operating in fear. You have to stop. Because you got a window of time to live and your story's being written right now. And, I, and I, to give you some hope, Moses had his blips on the screen. He had his doubts about himself, his doubts about whether he should be the guy. So please hear me when I say I'm preaching to myself as well. But I got to hear this as well. I can't operate in fear. Look at verse 24. We'll just... Tackle a few more verses. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, now from a baby to an adult, 
refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He refused it. Someone wanted to give him a title, and he said, don't you call me that. <laughs> I laugh because in some circles, uh, pastor's wives are called the first lady. And my wife says, don't you ever call me that. <laughs> and I love that about my wife. Don't you ever call me that. <laughs> right? She doesn't, she doesn't want that title. Someone wanted to call Moses, you know, whatever. By this title, here is the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Now batting. <laughs> right? No, 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 no. I don't want the title. So many people are so worried about titles, right? <laughs> Make sure that you print my business card with Moses like, nope. Don't, don't call me that. He refused it. He didn't want to be called that. He chose rather, and I want you to see what he did. He chose to endure ill treatment. He chose to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. You know what Moses' faith choice was, one of them when he was an adult? Someone said to him, look, and there's some extra biblical uh, literature that Moses may well have inherited the throne of Egypt. Uh, there's some extra, extra biblical literature, and there's a debate about who the Pharaoh is and what exact time this is, but that the Pharaoh may not have had a child. And I know that the firstborn of Pharaoh dies in the uh, plagues, but that may be a different Pharaoh. So he may not have had a child, and maybe uh, his daughter wasn't able to have children either, and that Moses was in line for the throne. Can you imagine that? Uh, no, don't fan me anymore. No more grapes, ladies. I'm going to go out and do the mud dance with my people while I get whipped in the back by the taskmasters. That's what I'm choosing. All the pleasures and riches of Egypt at your beck and call, whatever you want, whenever you want it, with whoever you want, all you got to do is bing, bing, and here they come. Pleasures, pleasures, and more pleasures. And Moses said, nope. I'm going out to my people to be what? To be mistreated as a slave. Do you know that that's what Jesus did? Jesus left the glory of heaven to come and die on a cross and be mistreated by the world, which is a picture of Egypt. Why would he ever do that? Why would he ever come on a rescue mission like that? To be born in a cave. To be born to a family that were nothing in terms of the world. To not have the education. To not have any of it. Why would he do that? And why would he die on a cross? Because he chose to endure mistreatment for his people. Amen? That's the gospel. And by faith, some of you are going to have to refuse some things. 
And I know it's hard in our world, but look at verse 24 and mark the word he refused. And look, he had everything that a worldly man could want. And he refused it. He refused the title. He refused the pleasure. He chose 25 ill treatment. He chose to endure it to be mistreated with the people of God rather than to enjoy what? The passing pleasures of sin. To enjoy sin for a short time, a season, New King James. Sin is pleasurable for a season. And if someone tells you that it's not, they're not being honest with you. Truth is, if you do things to indulge your flesh, there will be some pleasure from it. <gasps> Can you say that in church? Yeah, it's real. And many of you dove into the deep end of that life. And what you found there was some pleasure. Here's the problem, though. The pleasure is short-lived. And if you ever dabbled in drugs or promiscuity, here's what happens. You get a first high, you get a first experience, and oh, it's unbelievable. They never told me how good this was in church. <laughs> and then you try to duplicate that. A second time, and a third time, and a fifth time, and a hundred time. And users who are addicts will tell you they try to duplicate the first high, and you can never get there. Never. And then you have multiple sexual partners, and what happens? Oh, there's a moment of pleasure, and then you get to live with all of the fallout. You know what the commercials will never show you? The next day. They want you to be so fixated on the couple minutes of pleasure, whatever that is, but you don't see the commercials of the next morning when someone says, I'm pregnant, or my husband found out, or you've got such a terrible addiction that you gotta wake up and feed it again, and that thing becomes your master. The devil doesn't show you that stuff. Amen? This is truth, people. And Moses said, man, a lot of that stuff in Egypt looks good. And I've often said this sort of jokingly, but temptation, by definition, is tempting. If it weren't, we wouldn't call it temptation. <laughs> Amen? It looks good. It looks promising. But there's a hook. There's a price to be paid when you don't do things God's way. And so Moses made a faith choice. He said, I, I could have that title. I can do all that indulging. But instead of that, he went out to God's people. And there are many scholars that believe that Moses already knew that he was called to be the deliverer. And here's what he did. He made a choice, 26. He considered the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. Now, how could anyone ever do that? I mean, if just, just rewind for a second. You got the treasures of Egypt. Just think about 
the things that they discovered with Tutankhamun and you know, all the riches and all that stuff, King Tut, right? All the stuff they've unearthed. Think of all this stuff available to you. That's door A. Door B is the mud dance with your <laughs> persecuted fellow Israelites who have scars everywhere on their backs and work for the Pharaoh from sunup to sundown and maybe beyond. And Moses said, I choose door B. What? Why? Because, 26, he was looking to what? The reward. Brethren, think with me. If Moses would have taken the throne of Egypt, he would have died in the plagues. I mean, just walking it out practically, if Moses became the Pharaoh, God destroyed Egypt. And even if Moses stayed in a high position and he squared off with the God of the Bible, Moses would have been swept up in the plagues. He would probably have been killed. Moses had to look beyond the immediate and the eyes of faith. Look at the definition of Hebrews 11.1. 1. Here it is. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. I'm going to say this if you're a little younger. Please hear these words. Wise people make short-term sacrifices for long-term gains. And there's going to be things, carrots that dangle in front of your face that are going to look so good. And at first they'll probably taste good too. But the question you have to ask yourself is this. What reward ultimately are you looking for? Who do you want to please? And Moses was looking well beyond just the immediate. He was also looking to the eternal. One apologist put it this way, meaninglessness does not come from being weary of pain, but from being weary of pleasure. And somehow, and I don't quite understand how this worked, but if you look at the language, Moses made a decision to bear the reproach of Christ, 26. Christ, Messiah, he saw that as greater riches than, the, riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. And we won't deal with this, but by faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. Most believe that's the exodus, and that's the second, not being afraid, but that'll be for next time. Here's what I want to leave you with. Moses made a decision to take the reproach of Christ and saw that as greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. And the only reason he could do that is he was looking with the eyes of faith. And that's how we have to live our lives as well. And you can see the implication for the Hebrew audience. Persecution. What's the temptation of the Hebrew first century believers? Go back to the bondage of the law. Think of the bondage of Egypt. Go back to the temple sacrifices. How many times did the people of Israel going through the desert say, we're selling tickets to go back to Egypt. Who's coming? But we were slaves. Yeah, but Friday night, they had steak and onions, right? Yeah, I know I've got a lot of scars on my back, but every Friday, get to eat steak. 
And now it's just this manna, right? And the, the Hebrew readers, the recipients of this letter, they're facing their own battle. Do I indulge the temporary, wiggle out of persecution, go back, play the game at the temple, go back to the Old Testament sacrifices to please this family member who's upset with me in this situation? Or do I look to the reward and follow Christ? Every generation has to decide. And if you compare your life to what these people had to face, let me ask you, you had any challenges like this? I mean, some of you have had some very difficult things, but like this? Like what Moses faced? Like what his parents faced? Probably not. And that's what the writer is saying. We have this historic faith. These people were real. They made decisions, and you can make them too. And you can make them by faith. Father, thank you for this word to us. It's a timely word in our crazy world where so much is going haywire and seems like any kind of conservative moral compass is challenged at every turn. A biblical worldview is almost like laughed at now. We've moved so far, it seems like many in the church, and let's just talk about the church, are facing having to make some tough decisions. Like, is this what I really believe? And is it worth it? And um, and for Moses, I'm sure he could reflect back on his life and say, man, that wasn't easy. <laughs> it wasn't easy leading the people out. I had to overcome a lot of fear, personal inadequacies. But in the end, I know Moses was very grateful when he saw what he saw, when he experienced what he experienced of your Shekinah glory, when he realized that Joshua would take the people in when he showed up on the Mount of Transfiguration and was on the right team forever. These are things that um, we have to consider, Lord, as we navigate our times. Bless your people. Um, thank you for their patient listening to this teaching. I pray that whatever is not profitable for them, they'll forget. But whatever you want them to hold on to, they'll walk it out by faith. In Jesus' name, amen.